0: Grand leading principle towards which every argument unfolded in these pages directly converges is the absolute and essential importance of human development in its richest diversity. This is the voice of Wilhelm von Humboldt, and it's quoted by John Stuart Mill at the beginning of his seminal work on liberty. Now we remember Mill in that work, or at least most people remember Mill as being the author of the harm principle. The harm principle states that individuals should be able to do whatever they like so long as they don't harm other people. And the harm principle has been used, indeed, it was intended to be used by Mill to prescribe the limits of the power of the state and to ensure that the state does not transgress upon territory that properly belongs to the individual. Mill says, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. And in these two quotations, in these two ideas, we have a tension in Mill. On the one hand, he seems to be behaving like or arguing like a classical liberal. He wants the state to be small. At least that's the conclusion that most naturally accords with the harm principle. And on the other hand, if we listen to the voice of von Humboldt, Mill is stressing the absolute and essential importance of human development in its richest diversity. Well, that starts to suggest that maybe Mill would be in favour of a larger state in some circumstances. Because modern liberals would argue that only a large state can provide the prerequisites for uh, human development in its richest diversity. So Mill's often been seen as a transitional liberal. He is definitely mostly a classical liberal in the sense that, um, if you read uh, his writings, he's 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 arguing for a small state. Um, he is a Victorian thinker, after all. But there are suggestions of what is to come in Mill's writing thus his focus on human development right at the beginning of On Liberty. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Mill today. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about his life. Um, I'm then going to talk about On Liberty, the most important text uh, that you need to be familiar with, because it contains two key ideas um, that the specification wants you to be familiar with. First of all, the harm principle, which I've also already touched upon. And secondly, the idea of toleration, Uh, and Mill explores this uh, in chapter two when he talks about and defends uh, free speech. I also want to talk about two other things in relation to Mill, uh, which relate to two other books that he published. Firstly, I want to talk about um, his views on women. He was a radical thinker in many ways and wanted uh, women to have the vote he's one of the first, certainly one of the first male political philosophers to articulate that view in a book called The Subjugation of Women, published in 1869. He's also a member of parliament who, um, when the second reform act uh, was being debated in 1866, he put forward an amendment that would have given women the vote. So he's very progressive on these issues. And finally, I want to talk about his views on democracy. Um, most of which are contained in a book called Considerations on Representative Government, published in 1861. Um, Mill, like most of the liberals in the period, and certainly like most classical liberals, um, believed in democracy. But he also had misgivings about uh, what the emergence of mass democracy uh, would mean for liberal society. And he had worries about that. So that's the way that we're going to approach this. I'm going to start then by talking about his life. So Mill was a Victorian thinker. He was born in 1806. He dies in 1873, and so most of the time that Mill is alive, and certainly um, once he's uh, an adult, once he's he's writing uh, these great works of um, political philosophy, Victoria is on the fr- on the throne. So he's a classic Victorian thinker. And so, the England that Mill is growing up in, uh, we, we we have, or well, Britain has, a large empire. We are the industrial centre of the world, um, and it's a period of rapid industrial development and rapid change. Now, Mill himself is a bit of a prodigy. Um, he's a he's a child genius, in other words. Um, When he's growing up, he learns Latin and Greek. He helps his father to publish um, a history of India. He also helps his father to edit his own work of political economy. And Mill becomes, as a result of this childhood, a true polymath. And he goes on to write really important works um, in politics, also in philosophy, and in economics. So for example, in politics, um, he writes books um, like On Liberty. Uh, in philosophy he writes a book of logic um, and in economics he he writes uh, a book that goes on to become the textbook for economics uh, for about 50 years until Alfred Marshall's book on economics replaces it. So he's a true polymath um, he writes all sorts of stuff and he's also actively engaged in politics. He's a member of parliament and uh, um, and therefore, he's he's not just a passive um, person, sort of philosophically reflecting on politics. He's actively engaging in it now, partly because of his his childhood. Um, he's kind of, I should have said, in relation to his childhood, he's kind of an experiment. The reason he's a he's a genius isn't an accident. It's because um, James Mill, his father, um, and uh, friends like Jeremy Bentham. Um, Believe um, in a certain sort of education that you can create genius by um, by design by 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 bringing up a child in a certain way. And so Mill is a bit of an experiment. He's 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 um, the education that he receives is a bit of an experiment, and it and it kind of works. He's he obviously turns into a genius, um, but he also has a mental breakdown in his twenties, and he recovers. So the story goes by reading romantic poetry. Um, Now, his father and uh, Jeremy Bentham, very influential on Mill. And as a result, Mill follows them in becoming a utilitarian. uh, Or as Mill describes it, he he becomes a philosophical radical. Now, utilitarians are those that believe that morality is about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. Importantly, um, Mill um, adds to that crude utilitarian uh, logic. We don't need to dwell on it too much here because um, it doesn't pertain too much to his political views. Um, but it's worth mentioning that whereas for Jeremy Bentham, um, utility was simply about adding up pleasure and pain in what he just he called um, the hedonic calculus. Um, Mill said it was quite tricky to do that because you you can't just take into account the the quality, sorry, the quantity of pleasure, you also have to take into account the quality. So Mill believes in in higher and lower pleasures. Um, And essentially Mill's view is if you want to have a society that is happy, you need to provide conditions of liberty because ultimately... Um, and this is a really well-trodden liberal argument now. Individuals are rational, um, utility-maximizing creatures. Um, and if they sort of selfishly pursue their their own self-interest um, and they're left free by the state to do so, then they're going to make good choices about their own lives. And so a liberal society that allows people to live their own lives in their own way is also going to be a society where happiness is maximized. And so Mill's liberalism and his utilitarianism, at least in his own mind, do not come into conflict. Other thing we should say about Mill um, is that he has a very influential relationship with a woman called Harriet Taylor, um, who is certainly Mill's soulmate throughout his life um, and ends up becoming his wife. but that happens uh, fairly, fairly late on in his life because Harriet had been married uh, to another man. Uh, but many people argue that, that Harriet Taylor was at the very least very influential on Mill's thought, that, that, that Harriet may well, for example, have influenced some of Mill's feminist beliefs and ideas. And others argue that, that some of Mill's work may, may actually have been written by Harriet Taylor, which is worth mentioning. Okay, so I'm going to move on. I'm going to talk about um, some of Mill's ideas, starting with um, the two ideas that, that are in the spec. And those are the harm principle and tolerance, which are both ideas that come from a book called On Liberty, published in 1859. In chapter one of On Liberty, Mill outlines what he describes as a very simple principle. And on the face of it, it is a very simple principle. The harm principle is simply the idea that individuals should be able to do whatever they like. They should be able to exercise their freedom um, subject to the constraint that they mustn't harm other people. And by harm, there's a little bit of debate about this. Uh, Mill seems to mean direct physical harm, and, and, and he certainly excludes, for example, the idea that um, offending somebody might be harmful and therefore you should restrict somebody's freedom because what they do or say might be offensive to them. Um, and later philosophers like Joel Feinberg have have questioned that, but certainly for Mill, um, offence is not a sufficient warrant to restrict somebody's uh, liberty. And so um, for somebody like Mill, um, you know, if you want to set up a nudist colony um, and all walk around naked um, the fact that some people may be offended by that exercise of your freedom is besides the point Uh, it is open to you to do so you're not directly harming anybody um, by doing so and the argument that um, the offense that you cause is harmful is not an argument that Mill uh, entertains. Equally for Mill um, you should be able to do things uh, to yourself, even if those things that you do to yourself may be harmful. Um, so it's not the business of other people to uh, tell you what to do, even if um, even if were they to interfere in a paternalistic way in your life, that might be better for you. It might be that you 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 rather like um, smoking fine cigars. Uh, drinking whiskey, um, paint your own picture, it might be very bad for your health. But that's up to you. Over yourself, over your own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. It's not for other people to tell you what to do. And it's certainly not for the state to tell you what to do. The fundamental belief that Mill has here in the harm principle is that if you allow people to live their own lives in their own way, to engage in what Mill calls experiments in living, if you allow people to behave, um, therefore, quite eccentrically, people pursuing lots of different ways of living a good life, if you allow that to happen, then humanity is going to develop in its richest diversity and it's going to ultimately lead to human happiness. And so you should uh, get the state out of the way and allow people to pursue their own lives in their own way because it's going to lead to... Uh, A flowering of human development. It's going to allow many flowers to bloom in many different ways. So that's chapter one um, of On Liberty. That's the very simple principle, the harm principle, and many have argued that it leads to a view of the state um, that is quite limited. That the state, if it's only interfering in our lives to prevent harm to others, well, then it's not going to be a state that's doing all that much. It's going to look much more like the state that someone like John Locke imagined, where the state only exists to protect our natural rights, life, liberty, and property, than the sort of state, for example, that John Rawls has in mind, where the state is going to exist also to try and create a just society, a society where there is genuine equality of opportunity. And... Um, Okay, so that's the harm principle. Let's let's move on to the second idea that the spec wants us to talk about, which is toleration. And Mill um, explores toleration in Chapter 2. Now, we've already seen you know, a suggestion of what Mill might think here because a society um, that operates according to the harm principle is going to be a society where many different people are doing very many things. And we've already heard from Mill that... Uh, offending somebody is perfectly okay. It's not a reason to restrict someone's freedom that they might offend somebody. Uh, In chapter two, he makes that explicit in relation to uh, free speech. Before we get into that, though, let's just first of all define what we mean by toleration. Well, if I tolerate something, it means that I allow something to happen even though I disagree with it. Okay, so that might mean that I allow somebody to say something even though I I disagree with it. And there are many examples that we might point to uh, in the world today. Uh, There's a a group, for example, in uh, the United States that you might have come across the Westboro Baptist Church, and um, they like to stand outside the funerals of dead soldiers, and they like to hold up offensive signs. I don't want to say what those signs say, Because those signs are offensive, but do feel free to look look them up. Now for Mill, free speech is important and for Mill there there really shouldn't be very many limits on on, on our free speech. The only limit that Mill places on our free speech is if our speech is going to lead to direct physical harm. In other words, speech, just like with action, should be constrained by the harm principle. And so he gives an example of this: um, It's okay for me to shout, "Corn dealers are starvers of the poor." In most circumstances, but if I were to do that outside of a corn dealer's house, with an angry mob listening to my every word, then you know I probably shouldn't do it because it's going to cause it's going to cause direct harm. So, in circumstances like that, um, you know, if I shout "fire" in the middle of a crowded room, that's the classic example. I shouldn't be allowed to to speak. But in all of the circumstances, according to Mill, I should. Now, the reason for that, that Mill wants to put forward, is that um, it's essentially an enlightenment view about how we make progress as a society. For Mill, um, we make progress when we find truth, and the only way we can find truth is through argument, and therefore argument should be be unconstrained. Um, And Even if we think that our opinion is 100% true, uh, according to Mill, we should still allow other people's opinions uh, to exist because the value that we get out of arguing with people who've got wrong opinions is that we get um, a livelier impression of our own truth. So rather than the truth that we have existing as what Mill calls dead dogma, It exists as living truth. In other words, we understand the basis of our own beliefs better if we interact with people, if we argue with people who have false beliefs. And, of course, there are going to be intermediate points between me having the whole of the truth and you having none of it. Even when somebody is mostly wrong about something, there may be a grain of truth in what they're saying, and therefore silencing an opinion robs us of of getting at that grain of truth. But it's all about this for Mill, isn't it? It's all about the search for truth. And and essentially what Mill believes is that when you constrain uh, people's speech, you're constraining the truth from emerging in intellectual argument. And so Mill, like most liberals, has a belief um, that history is a march of progress and that the... Free exchange of ideas is the way that we make moral, intellectual, and scientific progress in the world. Now, in terms of what the spec wants you to know, we've, we've covered it. We've talked about the harm principle and we've talked about toleration. But there is more that we could say in relation to Mill and more we could write in our essays. So I'm going to move on next to talking about Mill's feminism, and I'm then going to talk about Mill's views on democracy. So Mill writes uh, the subjugation of women in 1869, which means it's one of the last things he writes before his uh, death. Um, And it's a book about the the condition of women within Victorian society. Um, There are two broad things that he covers in the book. The first is the marriage contract. And he draws a bit of an analogy between... um, a despotic regime in politics, in other words, a dictatorial regime, and what the marriage contract looks like. And he says essentially that those two things are essentially equivalent that in the marriage contract, the husband essentially becomes a dictator over his wife. And Mill says, well, look, that might be fine if you've got a nice husband, just like in politics, it might be fine if the dictator is a benevolent dictator. But what if you don't have a nice guy? What if your husband is a tyrant? What then? Now, the, the problem with the marriage contract is that when Miller's writing, um, it's essentially a property relationship. So for example, if you, you are married to a man and you earn money, the money belongs to him. And he might give you a little bit of it back Um, for you to spend but it's his money and even if you're separated and you earn some money the money belongs to him so it's impossible within a marriage for a woman to have an independent existence and the same applies to your children if you have children within a marriage the children belong to him and again even if you're separated and you take the children away um, they continue to belong to him And the problem with the marriage contract continues right up until, you know, very, very recent times. So, for example, up until the 1990s, until Tony Blair's Labour government, um, the idea of marital rape didn't exist. Because you were in a marriage contract, uh, if your husband wanted to have sex with you, you were presumed to consent. Um, And that was changed in the 1990s. And so this idea of the marriage contract as essentially a a property relationship with the woman being very much subservient to her husband um, is something that really survives for a very long time. And that's something that Mill talks about in the subjugation of women. Now, the essence of the argument in subjugation of women is utilitarian. So if we remember, a utilitarian is somebody that believes in the greatest happiness the greatest number. Uh, In terms of public policy, it's somebody that believes that the public policies should aim towards maximizing happiness and minimizing pain. Now, in relation to the question of um, rights for women, Mill essentially says, look, in society as it exists presently, with women not having the right to an education, not having the right to vote, not being members of the labour force. Um, This is a society where women are underdeveloped. One half of humanity, Mill says, is underdeveloped. So essentially the argument in subjugation of women is that it's a sheer waste of human potential. And he points to some examples. He says, for example, look at what happened um, in Britain when we did have a woman on the throne, the great Elizabethan age, with Queen Elizabeth I on the throne. He says, we've got a woman on the throne presently, Queen Victoria, living in a great Victorian age. Um, And essentially he says, look, imagine what could happen. Imagine um, the world we could live in if one half of humanity was not underdeveloped, how much human progress we could make. And it comes back to this fundamental idea Uh, that I mentioned at the start, this idea of human development and its richest diversity. You can't have that. You can't have that unless all of humanity is developed to the same extent. Now, Mill's arguments around um, giving women rights were not merely theoretical arguments. He was a member of parliament. And in the debate around the Second Reform Act, which is the act that starts to give votes to to the working class for the first time if they own uh, enough property. Um, he argues in 1866 that women should be given the vote. Now if you recall that women don't get the vote um, on equal terms with men until 18 uh, sorry 1928, uh, first getting the vote in in 1918 after the end of World War one, of course, You can see that Mill is about 50 years early in advocating for this. So he is a liberal feminist. He is uh, a fairly early liberal feminist. Obviously, Wollstonecraft, um, about 50 years earlier, um, argues very, very similar things. But Mill picks up the baton in The Subjugation of Women, and it's worth mentioning that he does. Now, the final thing I want to mention is a book called Considerations on Representative Government, which Mill publishes in 1861. And in this book, Mill discusses his thoughts on democracy. Now, like all liberals, Mill believes that democracy is the the only form of government, the only legitimate form of government, rather. In other words, that um, authority can only be legitimate if it is exercised um, with the consent of the governed and that that authority becomes illegitimate as soon as that's not the case. So he is a democrat um, but as the title of the book suggests he believes in representative government and he believes in representative government of a particular type. Um, Essentially Mills view of democracy is that um, voters should look at elected representatives in terms of the qualities they possess and they should basically be trying to send people to parliament who are um, excellent um, thinkers debaters orators and that parliament should 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 should, re, um, should reflect the diversity of views within society and so mill is one of the first thinkers to argue for proportional representation mill is uh, not a big fan of Political parties he believes that Parliament should represent independent individual voices rather than being um, governed by uh, large political parties who whip their members of Parliament to vote certain ways um, and so he thinks he thinks Parliament should be a chamber of um, highly educated people debating the issues of the day In a pretty independent fashion and that they should be elected on the basis of proportional representation so that all voices in society are mirrored Um, now he's also got some quite strange views about democracy Um, so for example because he wanted um, democracy to be um, or to lead to over time um, the development of people's education because he wanted democracy to lead to the furtherance of knowledge. Um, He he, he wanted society to eventually become um, an arena where people are debating ideas. And and by debating and defending ideas, uh, Mill felt that a democratic society in its truest sense would lead to a much more educated uh, population. And so because of this, Mill opposed the secret ballot In other words, he opposed the idea that when we vote, we should go into a booth and secretly put an X down on a piece of paper and put it into a ballot box. What Mill thought we should have to do is to actually defend our vote in public, because if we did that, we'd have to get into the reasons why we're voting a certain way. And so Mill's conception of democracy is much richer, and much fuller than uh, the, the, the kind of democracy that we live in today. The other thing that Mill said, much more controversial, was that those people who don't know very much about politics should not be allowed to vote, that you should have to sit a test. In other words, that you should have to know the bare minimum about politics in order to be able to cast a ballot. Um, And further to this, if you knew a lot about politics, Mill argued that you should be given more than one vote. He devised what he called a plural voting scheme. Uh, and he said in his biography that this scheme, this idea, found favour with nobody. It was not very popular. So Mill was a, de- was a Democrat, but he also had, as many liberals did, misgivings about democracy. And essentially they boil down to a fear of the uneducated mass of people. Now obviously, Mill's conception of democracy is that it should be essentially ruled by the best Uh, people going into parliament and debating ideas. And so he's horrified by the idea that democracy might actually be ruled by the uneducated masses. And he talks here about um, the case of Socrates. Now for those of you that don't know, Socrates was arrested in ancient Athens, put on trial by the Athenian polis, um, and the Athenian polis voted as a whole after uh, hearing from Socrates and hearing from his accuser and Socrates was put to death uh, he was charged with corrupting the youth of Athens and he was forced to drink hemlock and Mill uses this as an example of what he, he sees as the danger of democracy that it could lead to to quote de Tocqueville the tyranny of the majority that it could Um, prioritise the common good, a collectivist concept, over the rights of the individual. Democracy could lead to the violation of individual rights. And in particular, what he's worried about, because remember 1867, the passage of the Second Reform Act is the first time that working class people get the vote. He's worried that because the working class will vote in their own class interests, and because they're the most numerous class in society, that working-class people will vote for socialism. And what does socialism mean? It means the violation of property rights. And so we find in Mill this curious mixture of um, really in some ways quite a radical Democrat with some of the ideas that he has in, in relation to democracy. But there's also misgivings. There's, there's a, there, there are worries about democracy in Mill. And these worries are typical of classical liberal views of democracy. Modern liberals far, far, far more comfortable with democracy because they're living in a completely different historical context where uh, democracy is much more firmly embedded. Uh, But classical liberals have these historic worries that democracy will lead to rule by those least fit to govern the ill-educated masses. Okay, I'm just going to summarize as quickly and as briefly as I can. First of all, Mill is a transitional liberal. Now, this means he's mostly a classical liberal, but there are elements in his thought that prefigure um, or preempt the ideas of modern liberals. And so we find the first idea, the harm principle, we find in there an argument that says you can do whatever you like so long as you don't harm other people. And this has been interpreted by many people as an argument for a small state, the kind of state that John Locke had in mind, which is going to do as little as possible and is going to interfere in our freedom as little as possible. But also in On Liberty, we find this idea of the development of the individual, the idea that if you allow people uh, their freedom, that it's going to lead to human development. And it's that idea of human development Um, that thought in Mill, which ends up getting developed by modern liberals into um, ideas uh, like positive freedom, the idea that freedom, uh, we're free insofar as we have the capacity to develop. And so there is a tension here in Mill. Uh, He's certainly a classical liberal. He wants the state to be small, but there are little ideas, little suggestions of ideas, like his fixation on human development, that chart the way for what is to come, which is, Modern liberals arguing for a much greater role for government in order to provide people with the, the resources that will enable them to develop. Now, Mill in chapter two of On Liberty argues for a society that is tolerant. Um, we could sum this up with the words, Voltaire, um, I may detest what you say, but I should defend to your death the right to say it. Mill believes in free speech. And he believes in free speech for a very simple reason. He thinks that it's only by having discussion and debate uh, with other rational beings that society can make moral, scientific and intellectual progress. And so that's it. That's it. It's as simple as that for Mill. Um, now, you can criticize that. And I think particularly in, in modern times, we realize that, that Mill's version of free speech relies upon the idea that we are, in fact, trying to um, argue about the truth well it doesn't feel like that much of the time when we're on social media does it it doesn't feel like that is the only purpose of speech in any case, Mill's a big believer in speech, in free speech and he wants as little constraints as possible and the only real constraint in speech is that provided by the harm principle so if I'm shouting fire in a crowded building well that shouldn't be allowed but pretty much everything else should be according to Mill. fourth, uh, Thirdly, rather, Mill is a feminist. Uh, he argues in the subjugation of women that the marriage contract is essentially a despotic uh, contract um, and represents uh, a contract that looks more like a, a, a property relationship than it does a relationship built on love, equality, and mutual respect. Now, essentially, the argument in that book is that uh, on utilitarian grounds, women should be given rights because, in the society that Mill lives in, one half of society is going undeveloped. So, he argues that women must be given rights and he backs that up by um, trying to insert an amendment into the second reform act that would have given women the vote. Finally, Mill believes in democracy, but he is also ambivalent about democracy. He wants to have A democratic society um, where um, Parliament is a chamber of experts discussing and debating with each other as individuals um, and reaching uh, conclusions that are correct. He wants the wider society to be a society uh, that is truly democratic, lots of people discussing and debating with each other. Um, He wants to give the more educated more votes. Um, And he wants to have proportional representation, so he really is a Democrat in the liberal tradition. But he also has misgivings. He worries that democracy will bring with it the tyranny of the majority and could lead to class-based politics. It could lead to the election of a socialist government that will take away property rights. So that's Mill in a nutshell. I've tried to be as brief as I can. but there's just so much to say about John Stuart Mill, and I could have said more. Um, he really is a thinker that that uh, that, that in his time you know, wrote about everything that, that that was going on and really is a um, really interesting thinker to read. So I hope you will read him at some point rather than just listening to me talking about him. So that's it for Mill. Um, next time I will talk about John Rawls. <laughs>